What's up, movie friends? Welcome back to Raiders of the Lost Podcast. I'm Anthony. And I'm James, and this is episode 28. We'll be doing modern space films. The episode will feature The Martian, Interstellar, Gravity, and Moon. All four of these films are significant achievements in filmmaking. They're unique in their stories and have incredible climaxes due to their immense stakes. Yeah, we, there are so many great space films, but we wanted to do modern ones of the last like decade or so. Because I think people have a better awareness of these ones. Yeah. And I love them all. Yeah, of course, there are other ones that we'll cover eventually, like Ad Astra we want to do at some point, and yeah. Sunshine, and, and other 2001, obviously. Yeah, so, but these are just some of our favorite modern ones. And I, why do we love space movies? Why do we love space stories? I mean, I've personally had a, a strong interest in space for the last few years and space travel in general. And I think it's really just the mystery and wonder. The exploration of it is incredibly fascinating because of the questions that we hope to answer and questions we do answer technology that we use and technology that's been developed that we're using every day in our lives we're just incredibly lucky to be living in the entire existence of humanity we're living in the time where we're actually in space and exploring space with this technology it's very exciting it's this it's just such a giant thing i don't think people really understand how big space is for example in our galaxy there are about 300 million stars and we know of over 300 billion galaxies across the universe. Just think about the sheer numbers of, of stars in that equation. And I mean, just distance too. It's about, I think we're 90 million miles away from the sun. Yeah. Uh, we're talking about the Martian. We're about 52 million miles away from, from Mars, I think. And off the top of my head, uh, we're roughly, we're going to be talking about the moon too. We're about on average 250,000 miles away from the moon, depending mm -hmm. on uh, different times of year and how close in proximity the moon is to us. So the distances are immense. They're almost unfathomable, and it's just super interesting to talk about and think about. Yeah, it, it really puts you into a perspective of here on Earth how, how tiny we are in comparison to just our, the size of just our galaxy, not even the universe, but well, just, just the Milky Way. We're not even a grain of sand on a beach, man. We're smaller than that. No way. We're a grain of sand on an endless beach that, that always stretches on and never stops. So yeah, this is super fun to talk about. We love space movies. We hope you guys, too, do, too. And we also have a special guest from NASA JPL who we'll introduce in a minute, and he's going to help us understand the accuracy and realism of these films. I mean, we know they're Hollywood movies, and there are a lot of science that isn't accurate, but we still want to talk about how realistic they actually are, just for fun. Yeah, I mean, yeah, we're not going to bash them too badly for their science, yeah. but, like, there's only movies. so much. You can't make it perfect. They're movies. And yeah. um, this episode is also brought to you by Manscaped one of the leaders in men's grooming products. Uh, they're a new sponsor of ours. Use the coupon code RAIDERSOFTHELOST for 20% off your order and free delivery. Raiders of the Lost. Just type that into manscaped.com or at the end of the URL for manscaped.com. 20% off your order. Get that now. It's a great deal. Our new sponsor. Thank you, Manscaped, for, for helping us out with the show. Before we get started, if you like our podcast and our content and want to help support us, the best thing you can do is share our podcast, either the YouTube channel or audio versions on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, wherever you listen to podcasts, you can find us. We're growing mostly word of mouth, so please share us with your friends and your movie friends and your family and everyone. Subscribe to the YouTube channel, hit the notification bell, leave a comment on YouTube. Leaving a five-star review on the audio Ser streaming services really helps us get seen by other potential viewers. We love those reviews. Especially the written reviews. Those help us out a lot. I know every podcast says this, but it really does help. We also have a Patreon now. You can check us out there and support us monthly and get unique perks like personalized video shoutouts, sneak peeks behind episodes, 
And our top tier patrons also get a monthly shout out on the podcast, which we will do next episode. Hell yeah. And uh, be aware, spoilers are abound, everybody. Before we begin, we'd like to introduce our good friend, Kevin J. DeBruin, who is a former rocket scientist at NASA JPL, space educator, ninja warrior, and Curiosity Stream's space expert. Kevin is going to give us a brief breakdown on these films, realism, plausibility, what he thinks about them. So go ahead, Kevin, take it away for us. Thanks, guys. The Martian is a top-notch film in terms of production, story, and, yes, science, if you completely disregard the fact that humans have never been to Mars. Now, the story is pretty good because the author, based upon a book, Andy Weir, actually worked in forums to create his story. There's two parts in this movie that are very questionable. One is the dust storm in the beginning, not enough atmosphere on Mars for that to happen, and the Iron Man thing at the end where he pokes a hole in his suit, very questionable. The rest of it, amazing. Now, Interstellar also does a great job at actually putting into practice some of the theories we have. What happens when you go into a wormhole? And time dilation, where some people experience time differently, dependent on gravity, also very well done. Now, gravity. I have not seen that movie because so many people have told me how awful the science is in it. So, gravity, won't even watch it. And you haven't talked about this one, but I'm going to say it, Armageddon. <laughs> no. Thank you, Kevin, so much for your highly qualified and unique expertise. Are a lot of these films super realistic? Yes and no. Are they just movies? Yup. That's why we love them. That's why we let these scientific improbabilities go. Should, should Sandra Bullock's hair be floating around in gravity? Yes, but you know what? They didn't want that. That would be terrible to watch, so we let this stuff slide. Yeah, they they take liberties in certain areas just because it's a movie, and it, it's they're not actually in space. And there's just like a historical biopic. Not everything is to the T. The character that plays this person is going to say things that that person never said. And so in space movies, like things are going to happen that don't really happen in space, but that's because it's a it's just a narrative piece of art. Yeah. You know, they just have to tell the story. That's yeah. their main goal, telling mm -hmm. a story. All right, let's begin with The Martian, which was released in 2015, directed by the great Ridley Scott, based on the book of the same title by Andy Ware, screenplay by Drew Goddard. And I have to say, this is one of the most accurate book-to-film adaptations I've ever seen, besides like a little diversion from the ending climax and some little things here and there. I suggest reading the book. It's just as enjoyable as this film. For a book that's all about science, it's extremely fun to read, and it's an endlessly entertaining book. It really is. Yeah. The Martian stars Matt Damon, who plays NASA astronaut Mark Watney, who is left on Mars after he is presumed dead by the rest of his crew during an emergency mission abort. Watney wakes up alone on Mars with meager supplies. Watney must figure out a way to survive on the red planet until help can arrive from 33 million miles away on Earth. This was an incredible movie to see in theaters because the visuals are stunning. Ridley Scott is one of the best directors out there working, especially in the realm of sci-fi and space exploration, which he's done so many films in. He operates very comfortably in that genre. It seems like he also had a lot of fun with this film because he was coming off Prometheus, which got a lot of critical bashing and people didn't like it too much. And so it seems like he just had a lot of fun with this movie. It's a lot lighter than Alien and that whole universe and a lot of his other space exploration movies. Yeah, it seems like the only genre he hasn't done in space now is a romantic comedy. Because he's <laughs> done horror in space, he's done action in space, and now he's done comedy in space. And yeah, this is like, it's not a straight comedy, but it is. it has so much comedic elements in it. it it feels like a comedy. Yeah, the majority of The Martian was filmed on giant indoor studio sets in Budapest, Hungary. 
And but many of the exterior shots of Mars were actually filmed in Wadi Rum, which is also the Valley of the Moon in southern Jordan. So these are a bunch of actual real landscapes that look kind of like a different planet, look like Mars. Yeah, and then they add a little uh, CGI in the back of the landscape shots. But for the most part, it's hard to believe that a place like this exists on Earth because it looks like an alien planet, and it was a perfect place to film. And that that's one of the strengths of the opening of the film where he shows you these amazing landscapes and it brings you into the reality of Mars. Because I feel like in other Mars movies in the past, it's been like... The, Mars has been presented as like a dangerous, super evil, like kind of has supernatural qualities to it, a bunch of the past Mars Mars movies. So this one brought a realism to it that we haven't seen before. Because really, it's just a harmless planet. It ha- just has no like resources. That's yeah. basically about it. Yeah. And um, I think the marketing team was the... The marketing team for The Martian was very clever because the way they advertised this film, they made it kind of seem like Mark Watney was a real person. He was really alive, stuck on Mars, because a lot of the posters and banners, they said, like, bring him home and, like, help is, like, so many miles away. So you get the sensation that, like— the same messages going on in the movie, right? Yeah, you you think, like, like, oh, Mark Watney's, like, really a person. Like, Matt Damon's (laughs) really on Mars. Like, you just drive by a bus stop with that poster. I want to know, has anyone figured out how much money the American, in in movies, how much money the American government has spent saving Matt Damon in movies? (laughs) Because between The Martian and Saving Private Ryan, there's something about saving Matt Damon. Because in Saving Private Ryan, all the soldiers are killed in saving him. And then in The Martian, they spend billions on this project to save him. So, so many, the government has put so many resources and sacrificed lives just to save Matt Damon in these movies. Hey, man, I would go to great lengths to save Matt Damon. That man's <laughs> national treasure. Come on. He's so likable. Oh, yeah, and he's Matt Damon's the reason why this movie works so well because he carries it on his shoulders. Obviously, he's in the vast majority of the scenes, but through his ability to just... When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer exude charisma he's so charming he's so funny he's so relatable like he keeps you invested in the character which is so hard to do yeah his natural charm is really critical to keep you in in the story with him as an audience member and the video diaries that he does also help a lot because he's like looking directly in camera so it's like he's speaking to the audience so it's kind of like you're there with him 
in like the little station, you're trapped with Matt Damon, and you just listen to him talk to himself basically the whole time. But I think him looking directly into the camera a lot of the time for those video diaries helps out a lot. It's funny because it's like he's breaking the fourth wall, but technically he's not breaking the fourth wall because it's it's a webcam. You know what I mean? Yeah, exactly. It's a and fun like, play on it. And and Mark Watney's a very funny guy. He seems like he could be any Joe walking around, but he's also very intelligent because he's a, he's a botanist and an astronaut. Mm. Yeah. But it's like this charm that helps him keep his humanity to help keep him going and keep his hope alive, especially the scene where um, he's finally getting into contact with NASA and they want him to send a photo to them. And so he takes the photo, and he's like, guys, thumbs up like the fonts. And they're all like, is, is he, does he have his thumbs up right now? Like, what's he doing? Which is hysterical. <laughs> yeah, his, uh, Mark Watney, he dis- after his uh, crewmates leave, and he comes back into the station, and he's like, oh, shit, I'm, I'm stranded on Mars. Pretty, pretty early on, I feel like so many people would give up and feel hopeless. But pretty early on, Mark says to himself, I'm not going to die on Mars. And so he has this never-ending spirit of survival and hope, which is what gives him the strength to continue to continue surviving on this planet. Because this movie, it's basically, yeah, it takes place on Mars, but it's a shipwreck film. Yeah. You know, it's like Castaway, except he doesn't have any resources, there's nothing he can eat, so he kind of has to make everything up for himself. He can't breathe the air, but it's basically shipwreck or like on a desert island by yourself stranded yeah this movie is literally it's a series of problems that need to be solved it's like either mark or nasa and jpl have to solve a series of problems and i made a list of them so oh, i love your list man i Let's like this so the first problem that mark has to solve is trying to fix his wound from the uh the piece of metal jammed inside of him and then he needs to figure out how to grow food on mars and then he needs to figure out how to make water on Mars. And then he needs to figure out how to drive 3,200 miles across the Mars landscape with his rover that can only last several hours and also gets very cold. And so then he has to figure out how to keep the rover powered and then also hot enough to, to withstand the cold temperatures of nighttime on Mars. And then he has to figure out how to make contact with NASA. And then he has to figure out how to hack the rover to communicate easier with NASA. And then he has to figure out how to ration his food after the hub explodes. Then NASA and JPL have to figure out how to get the Hermes back to Mars fast enough. And then they need to find a way to make the ship lighter for Mark's ascent into the atmosphere. And then they need to figure out how to get closer to Mark in order to grab him. And then he needs to figure out how to fly towards the ship, the Hermes, for them to make the grab. So it's just a series of problems that they need to scientifically solve just like, that's what a scientist is. They constantly solving problems. Yeah, basically, I, if you ever been to like NASA or toured it before, that's basically what their job is—just problem after problem, like assessing the situation and figuring out. And yeah. Mark Watney's training and his cool composure is what helps him get through this entire ordeal. Because, like you said, like the average person stranded on Mars, they're probably going to give up on hope and they're probably going to die pretty quickly and run out of food. But because he's so smart, because he's so well trained and he's such a good botanist, he's able to survive. He's able to use his training to figure out what to do just one step at a time, one problem at a time, figure everything out. If you think about it, he's probably the perfect person to be stranded on Mars. Absolutely. Yeah. Because he's the first person to colonize Mars because he calls himself the best botanist on the planet and he's <laughs> going to science the shit out of the situation. <laughs> I believe in the film he says something like, uh, I'm the once you grow crops somewhere, that means you've colonized it. So he, mm. he's the first person, first human being to colonize another planet, basically. I think one of the strengths of this movie is right off the bat, we get humor and 
from the crew. So, but when the crew is still on on Mars, there's a great camaraderie between them when they're all communicating through the headpieces. Where typically in a space movie, you would expect like very serious dialogue. Very, they're all professionals and like they're just all like doing their jobs. But what happens is they all just like start making fun of each other, and it feels like a a, a family of siblings. You know what I mean? Where where uh, Martinez is making fun of Mark. He's like, oh, hey, look, Mark discovered dirt, everyone. <laughs> <laughs> so it really pulls you in and makes you relate to these characters right away. You yeah, know because what, I mean? what we'll learn throughout this series and this episode is that all these space movies, despite taking place in the complete isolation of space and all these planets and the moon, is a lot of these films are about emotions and humanity and relationships. And it's really evident in The Martian where... Um, NASA's trying to figure out how to get supplies to Mark. Uh, do they want the Hermes to turn around to go and do the slingshot move around Earth to go back and pick Mars to pick Mark up from Mars? But that would you know increase like an extra 533 or 34 souls mm. on that crew's um, uh, mission. But because Henderson goes behind everyone's back and like secretly sends the messages to the Hermes to let them make the decision of them wanting to go pick up Mark because NASA's director, played by Jeff Daniels, decides not to go through the, with, with Rich Purnell's plan. That's the crew who decides we're going to go get them. We're going to go get our crewman because he's our brother. He's our friend. We love him. We, we left him stranded on Mars. They mm-hmm. thought he died. That's why they had to took off, take off because they were only 10 minutes into, into their mission, really, and they had to do an emergency report. Yeah, Commander Lewis, played by Chastain, has to make that obviously extremely difficult decision to to abort the mission they've barely been there and then the storm is so intense but she makes the right decision because she's a great leader and even mark and a couple of the others are like no we can stay let's just wait it out but she probably made the right call because if the ship had stayed on mars it probably would have tipped over and they all would have been stranded and so a great leader makes tough choices so chastain I think is a perfect leader in this movie. Yeah, and one of the reasons why they go and pick him up is because they feel so bad about abandoning Mark because they didn't know he was alive and what they did by leaving him there. And again, he's their brother, so they got to go save his ass. They got to go bring Mark Watney home, man. And I love this film because there's so much new technology and advanced technology, and we see this new ship with the spinning rotations to create G, which was also similar to Interstellar. But inevitably, the way Mark makes contact back with NASA is he finds the Pathfinder probe, which wasn't used since 1997 in order to create that connection to communicate with Earth. So he's going back and finding this really kind of old technology because I think the Martian takes place in 2035, I think, is mm-hmm. or in the 2030s. Yeah, 2035. That's, those are the years that it takes place. So it's ironic that he goes and finds a decommissioned piece of hardware from NASA that was probably made in like 1989 or 1990 because it, was, it took, takes five years to get to Mars. And so he uses this old piece of technology to ironically communicate with Earth. What's really cool about all the uh, scenes where Mark is outside on Mars is the gravity on Mars is 30% of that on Earth. And, sl- and so you, you would move differently. And so they filmed the outside, the, the exterior scenes at 40, 48 frames per second and then brought it back down to 24 for playback to make it look like kind of like a little bit of slow motion. And so what, if you watch the movie again, Whenever he's outside, his movement is kind of a little slow because they slowed it down. The story does a great job, like, bringing the stakes of death back to Mark because there are points throughout the film and the story where, like, Mark's doing great. You know, he's growing all his potatoes. He has enough food pretty much to eat meagerly until the Hermes can arrive or until supplies can arrive. 
And so things seem upbeat until things begin to go bad for Mark, which consistently happens throughout this film. And, um, like, for example, when he enters the habitat and the airlock decompresses, blowing out a good portion of his crops and causing his helmet to crack, and he gets a bunch of duct tape to seal the crack up, which is pretty funny. Yeah. But now he has less food, and he has to figure out that he has to basically starve himself to get to the three, to the rest of the time, the, the rest of the 300 souls, for the rations to come or for the Hermes to come pick him up. And Mark Watney is the definition of the human spirits, his resiliency that gets him through this whole thing, not giving up, keeping hope close to his heart, using your instincts for survival. This film, like, basically, it kind of makes you want to be able to survive disasters. It makes you want to learn more about space and more about practicality and doing things with your hands and engineering or, and all sorts of stuff like that. Yeah, it's about the human spirit and the will to live. And you, and just like Mark, the only way he got through it was because he never gave up hope, really. I mean, he had bad moments, but he never gave up. And he just kept working. And Watney uses a MAV to launch into space, into orbit of Mars, and this is where he has to figure out eventually and shoot out of the Mav to get to the passing Hermes. And he talked about it earlier. He was like, I'm just going to pinch a hole in my glove to, and be Iron Man. <laughs> and they're like, don't do that. You can't control yourself like that. And then he eventually pinches his glove and he's uncontrollably flying around and flailing through space like Iron Man. It's, mm. pretty, it's pretty hysterical, but it's also terrifying at the same time. Yeah. And Ridley has these great like wide-angle shots of... Uh, Jessica Chastain's character, the commander, trying to reach out and grab Mark Watney until they finally eventually like become intertwined and they grab each other and their helmets slam against each other and the look on Mark Watney's face is like, oh my God, this is a human being. I haven't seen anyone over a year. Yeah, it's a really emotional part and um, it's a great ending. And in the book, he actually, the Iron Man thing was just a joke Yeah. and everyone turned it down so they didn't actually do it, but I think it works better in the movie. It's, it's fun. It's just way more fun. Yeah, it's fun. Yeah, and the payoff for this film is immense and it feels real great for you as an audience member to see Mark Watney get saved by his crew. Yeah. And I feel like this movie properly, this movie used the media in a way that would probably happen if, a, if an astronaut was really stranded on Mars, I feel like the world would band together and it would be this huge media story, probably the biggest story of the year. And I love how for the final mission of the saving, it's being broadcast on Times Square and there are like thousands of people watching it because that's what it would really be like probably. Well, yeah, also, but not just like in terms of showing what's happening with the media, but also like Kristen Wood's character. She's like the marketing director of, yeah. of NASA and the images that they have to like preserve in terms of like what goes on behind the scenes and what they want to tell the public. So they're actually like really accurate in the way media uses selective information to show you what's happening in their corporation, in their business, just like NASA. Because remember, NASA is a government funded institution. It's not a private company. So they kind of have to maintain basically the image and what the government wants in terms of information getting out. And that's why Jeff Daniels character has to make a lot of hard decisions as the director of NASA. And Andy Ware, who wrote the novel, he um, basically, once he wrote this novel, NASA's like, yeah, you kind of basically nailed our day-to-day -day operations <laughs> and how we function and how we work. And if you've ever get the chance to tour NASA once COVID's over and everything, <laughs> I highly recommend going to one of their headquarters if you live close by one. We live near JPL, which is in Pasadena, and my buddy gave me a tour there, my other friend who works at JPL. And it's really fascinating to see, like, Kind of how simple the operation is, how it works. It's just kind of like any other job, just a bunch of offices and cubicles, but also very cool things yeah. are happening. But it's very structured. It's very professional, but also a laid back atmosphere in terms of like everyone's very personable and fun and nice and respectful. And basically because they all understand how intelligent they are and the, the missions and the, and the jobs that they're all doing to and working together to accomplish. 
things like space exploration and even technology that we have nowadays, it's amazing to think that where the people like us are like so primitive compared to them mentally, these people, and we're all the we are the beneficiaries of extremely smart and intelligent people creating things and new technologies to make our lives easier, and then also to advance technology by things like space exploration. It's an amazing thing that's that people can actually do this. Like watching these movies, it's like people actually build these ships and do the mathematics and engineering to understand and predict what they'll be able to do. Like most of these missions, they're planned out and predicted, and they know to a T when they're going to land, how long this is going to take, what the math is to get from A to B. You know what I mean? It's pretty amazing. Touch back on Andy Ware. This is his first book he ever wrote. He was working full-time. I think he was a computer programmer or he worked for, on a software company. And he was just writing the book at night and on weekends in his free time. And what he would do was to get traction for the book and how he got like a little audience before the book's uh, completion and releases, he would just post like chapters online for anyone to see publicly. And that's how what got him a lot of attention and a lot of motivation to finish the book. He actually uh, wrote a script for in a book for a new film about an astronaut stranded in a, in a spaceship that's going to star Ryan Gosling. That's very cool. And I yeah. think he, he still kept his job even after the selling the scripts to the Martian screenplay rights. Uh -huh. And uh, because he's like, I don't know if this is going to pan out. Like, who knows what's <laughs> going to happen after this movie? What if I never write a good book again? Which is smart. Seems like a very smart guy. But there are, of course, some inconsistencies and inaccuracies in the film and in the book. But again, we're telling a story here. And we got to, you know, sometimes let some of those things go. And you can't just look at everything so technically and scientifically i mean otherwise how are you supposed to enjoy star wars yeah gotta let it slide if you if you if you love a movie about laser swords you can love a movie like this and there are a lot of great performances from awesome actors in this film like sean bean's awesome in this movie and he does not die he doesn't thank die God. but he does get fired yeah <laughs> two child four is fantastic in this movie every scene he's in he steals i love him he's a great actor donald glover as rich purnell is absolutely hysterical in this movie he's like super eccentric he's kind of like Absent-minded, he basically lives at NASA. Yeah, and um, I love how he talks to the director of NASA like he doesn't even know who he is. He's like, "Yeah, what's your name, Teddy? I'm, I'm the director of NASA." Yeah, <laughs> stand over there for me. It's hysterical. <laughs> he takes like the the stapler, pretends that that's the Hermes, and yeah, like yeah. walks around the room. So, yeah, Donald Glover gives a really fun and fantastic performance, and this kind of I think introduced him to a lot of like more audience members and a, and a wider global international audience for his yeah, future for projects. Film. Yeah, because after he did this, he did um the Han, the Han Solo movie. There's some really great CGI in this film, especially the um, with Mark Watney when he's emaciated after the seven months. We kind of basically cut to seven months later of him, and he's been living on that ration diet, waiting for the Hermes to come get him. And Mark, he didn't actually lose all that weight to become that skinny. So it's a CGI of of Matt Damon's head on a body double, and it, it, it's pretty effective. They did a pretty good job, and you they only really had to do it for a couple of shots until he gets his suit on to really give you the idea of what he's been going through. Yeah, really, Scott cut it in a way where it's rare that you see his torso and his head in the same shot. You'll see like a close, it'll go from a close-up of uh, Mark of uh, Matt Damon and then go to like a wide of his emaciated body, but his back will be turned to us and stuff like that. So he pulls it off just through camera trickery. So they, they didn't really have to do too much CGI on it. And Ridley Scott claimed that all of Matt Damon's solo scenes were shot in uh, five weeks straight. And after that, he was relieved from the schedule, and he didn't even really meet most of the cast of this movie until they were promoting the film. <laughs> there was some controversy with this film because it won the Golden Globe for Best Comedy or Musical. So a, dumb. Yeah, a lot of people were upset because the studio submitted it as a comedy or musical, and yeah, it's a funny movie, but it's not a comedy. 
And so people like Judd Apatow and other comedy producers and filmmakers got really upset about it because it kept their films from getting nominated or winning that award. And so after this, the Golden Globes changed their criteria where it has to be a comedy first, not a drama with comedic undertones to it. Yeah, it's not a comedy. Yeah, Mad, Mad D- Sorry. There, there are funny lines, yeah, and, and Mark Watney's hilarious and sarcastic, but it's not at all a comedy. In no way do you, in your head, go to see this movie because you want to laugh. You go, you want to see it's a dramatic film. Yeah, and M- Matt Damon won the uh, Golden Globe for Best Actor in a Comedy or Musical, and that, it's like, dude, I mean, come on, really? <laughs> they did what they had to do to get Matt Damon to the award show, man. You, you do what you got to do to get Matt Damon <laughs> to show mar- up. It's all marketing. Award shows are mostly marketing. I want to go over some fun Mars facts, if you like. Let's do it. So according to NASA, Mars had a, has a reddish-orange glow during the day from all of the dust. Sunrises and sunsets appear blue because Mars has no atmosphere, almost no atmosphere. One day or soul on Mars is 37 minutes longer than a day on Earth. One Martian year is nearly two Earth years. That's because Mars orbits the sun much further away from the Earth, so it's much more distance to travel. The average surface temperature on Mars is a very chilly minus 80 degrees Fahrenheit. (laughs) Gravity on Mars is about, I think you said earlier, it's about 40% of that of Earth's. Because there's barely any atmosphere, dust storms can envelop the entire planet for days at a time. Wow. What do you think? Do you want to live on Mars with Elon Musk? Dude, I mean, I like... The idea of going to Mars, I understand why Elon wants to go to Mars, but yo, I don't want to die on Mars. I'm good. <laughs> I'm cool with having like Whole Foods like a mile away and yeah. like doing stuff here on Earth. It's a pretty cool place. But I mean, I, I'm so for space exploration. And you know what? If that's your thing, if you want to go to Mars on a suicide mission and die on Mars, that's cool for you, man. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just kidding. I love space exploration. Go to Mars, man. Yeah, that's why this movie is so, so great because if, I mean, I feel like they'll have astronauts in Mars before 2035. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Which is when this movie takes place. Yeah. Hopefully everything goes according to plan. So it's probably the first future sci-fi movie that's behind the schedule. Because usually in in the past, space movies like 2001 or um, 2010, they were made in the 80s and 60s. And their idea of the – or like Blade Runner – like their future predictions did not end up happening. Yeah, at Blade all. Runner is like 2019, right? Yeah, yeah. So <laughs> 2019 that, that did not happen. <laughs> Let's move on to Interstellar, written and directed by Christopher Nolan, co-written by his brother Jonathan Nolan. Released in 2014, it's about a, a team of explorers travel through a wormhole in space in an attempt to ensure humanity's survival. This film was nominated for five Oscars and won one for visual effects. And we've talked briefly about Interstellar before on the Chris Nolan episode, but we're going to go into more detail and more in depth. We'll do our best not to like bring up things we talked about in that previous episode. Mm-hmm. But if you hadn't checked that out, uh, the Christopher Nolan episode was a lot of fun. I love this movie. It's intense, emotional, dramatic, has amazing filmmaking and great acting, and one of my favorite scores by Hans Zimmer. And it's such a great experience for a space film. And I think it's one of the best sci-fi films of the last couple of decades. This is a visually stunning film, and it was Chris Nolan's first film that Wally Fisher wasn't the cinematographer for. Uh, Nolan trusted Hoyt Van Hoytema with the DOP duties, and he's worked with him since because Hoyt's fantastic. I think Hoyt does maybe even a better job like expressing Chris Nolan's vision on film. Yeah, Hoyt's, Hoyt's uh, probably top three cinematographers working today. And he filmed this in such a beautiful way. Same thing with Dunkirk, same thing with Tenet. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. 
For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. And he did add Astra as well. For this film, they used a lot of IMAX cameras. This is the most IMAX cameras that Nolan had used. We've talked about it before, but the practicality of Interstellar brings you into into the film because everything you're seeing, for the most part, is, is real. It's on set. It's in camera. It's tangible. It's not CGI. It doesn't look so pristine. It's 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 unbelievable, um, and it brings you into the moment and the action of this movie. Yeah, and uh, practicality is Chris Nolan's speciality, and he filmed in a lot of actual locations, a lot of places that look like different planets, kind of like with The Martian filming in Jordan, uh, taking the crew to real locations in Iceland to look like actual different worlds, like those those ice planets, like Miller's planet and. And uh, Dr. Mann's planet. And uh, Han- Anne Hathaway even suffered from hypothermia during one of those shoots because while filming in Iceland, she had a, a opening in her suit that got m- too much moisture and cold air inside of her body. Nolan's strength, one of Nolan's strengths throughout all of his movies has been location and environment. And it's done so in this film as well. But he has this, this strength to showing the environment where his stories take place, even back in like Insomnia, where you get those amazing helicopter shots of Alaska, and in this film with those that ice planet and the water planet, and even in the Dark Knight, that shot of the skyscraper that opens the movie, he has this amazing ability of showing incredible cinematography and imagery and creating iconic imagery just on the locations, and that's a strength to his stories, I think, and he's used it again in Tenet um, for anyone who's seen it. And he uses his environments to great effect. He doesn't always, like, no matter, like, there's a that fight scene with Matt Damon and Matthew McConaughey. And in the middle of the fight, he goes from a close-up of them fa- battling. And then he takes the camera, and then it's this gigantic wide shot of the entire icy planet. And they're, like, tiny little dots on the on the plane of the landscape fighting. And it's just, it, it, it's immense, the size of this planet. And... He makes incredible images with his locations. And it's a real environment. Yeah. You wouldn't think it's on Earth, but it actually is. Yeah. And another one of my other favorite practical effects he does is with the ship is, and he does this too, he mounts the camera with, he grip mounts it onto like the truck a lot, and he also grip mounts it, a camera onto the side of the ship a lot. Mm. And the way they shot that was not green screen or anything. They just mounted the, the cameras onto the ship uh, with, with a moving rig and then just giant LED screens of the images of sky, of space, of the planets. So mm-hmm. you actually feel like you're actually flying in those areas. So it's yeah. not CGI, it's not green screen. And he even does it um, in that wave scene when the, the ship is uh, floating across the giant wave and it's smashing into the water and the water is just bursting off of the ship and it they really shot it, the water coming off that ship and it makes you feel like you're there on that wave with the ship. And Tony Scott was a big um, user of this effect. He did it a lot in Top Gun actually strapping the camera onto the plane because when you see just a, a, a portion of the of the plane or the ship and you're right there on it and then you see the background um, changing based upon the movement of the ship, it makes you feel like you're on the ship with them. Yeah, you know he, what I mean? Yeah, he does it effectively with the truck too. One, this is, again, like you said earlier, one of Chris Nolan's emotion, most emotional films, if not the most emotional film. I mean, 
yeah, he has a lot of emotions in several films, but in this film, almost every single character breaks down crying. There's so much love and so much grief and pain in this film. Emotionally, say emotion one more time, Jim, Jesus. And uh, I love the shot. It's the transition of Cooper driving away from his family in the truck with the cameras mounted to the side and the camera pointing right in through the windshield and Cooper's crying. And then this is brilliant transition of while he's driving away, Hans Zimmer's score is blasting. And then we have the countdown for the rocket ship. So we don't even see the train or anything. He's like, screw all that. We're just going to go right <laughs> to the ignition. And then the, the ship, igni the rocket ignites and they blast off into space. Mm. It's a great transition. Yeah, it's a terrific moment. And this movie is so emotional because at the center of this movie, it's about the relationship between a father and his daughter. And he has to abandon his daughter in order to, and is what he thinks save save the planet, and that relationship is the heart and the glue of this movie, and it's it's such an emotional scene when when Cooper is trying to say goodbye to Murph and they're both crying and she doesn't want to say goodbye because she's so upset that he's leaving her, and then he accidentally reveals that he doesn't even know when he's going to be able to come back, and it's such. It just rips your heart out to see a father have to abandon his daughter. Yeah, but and that that scene, yes, is full of emotion, but it's also full of irony because you know Murph is begging Cooper not to go, crying to plead. She she says that the the Morse code from her ghost says stay, but he won't listen to her. In but even though it's actually him saying stay through the wall, through gravity, through time, and through space. He's sending those course, those Morse code messages to stay in the room. And we have that amazing song by Hans Zimmer that's playing called Stay as well. And Cooper literally breaks Murph's heart by leaving, thinking he's making the right decision. And during his mission, as an audience member, you can't help but feel that he made a massive mistake leaving Murph, Murph behind. Like a hopeless mistake leaving Murph. Especially, it's even worse, when he loses all those years of Murph and in, in Earth back in in seconds when he loses what, like 23 years mm. in a couple hours because on Miller's planet, every hour is seven years on Earth. But then when we're in the Tesseract, we see that he's traveling through all these different parts of Murph's life and his interactions with her, where at first he's terrified that he he did he left. He's trying to tell himself to stay. But then he realizes that he's there on purpose. He's been sent to communicate with Murph how to save the world. Mm. So ironically... At first, when he's in the Tesseract, he's trying to tell himself to stay, but then he realizes he's supposed to be there. 100%. Do you want to talk about the Tesseract right now? Let's I, get into it. Because some people, ten, uh, I, I'm sure it can be a little confusing, especially if you haven't seen this movie a lot or haven't read much about it. But essentially, the Tesseract is a physical construct of time and space. And so what happens is when, when Cooper is brought into the Tesseract by the fifth dimensional beings... For these fifth dimensional beings, time is a different construct for them. It's a physical construct for them. So they can they, there's a tangibility and a physicality to time and space for them. Whereas for us in the third in three dimensions, time just stretches on and it can't be changed and we can't see it, we experience it. But for fifth dimension beings, they can interact with it on a physical in a, on a physical level. And so Cooper, when he's in the Tesseract, He's actually he's not traveling through time. A lot of people think that he's he's time traveling to the past, but that's not he's not what he's doing. The thing with time is that it can't be reversed. Time can be stretched, but it can't be changed. And so these fifth dimensional beings for them, 
they're not traveling through time, but they can interact with time that has already happened. And so Cooper, he's not time traveling. He's he's using the fifth dimensional plane to interact with things that have already happened in time. And so by using gravity, he can affect things that already happened. And so it's not technically time travel. It's dimensional travel through gravity. Yeah, so basically, as they talked about early on, like who put this wormhole in our solar system? Because wormholes are not naturally recurring phenomenons. And there's basically is these beings that put it there, these fifth dimensional beings. They're the ones who put the wormhole there. They're us in the future. They're saving humanity. They're saving basically themselves in the past with Cooper and with Murph. And so these bulk beings, these future beings are the ones who put the wormhole in our solar system. They're also the ones that created the Tesseract so that Coop could interact with the fifth dimension, with their dimension to communicate with Murph back in time. Well, technically, like you said, it's not time travel because technically Murph isn't traveling in time. There's no time travel in this movie. He's just basically fulfilling a prophecy using the gravity in the fifth dimension to fulfill what he was doing in the original, original reality of where he, he just was with Murph. Yeah, so the fifth dimensional beings used Kurt Cooper to save themselves in the future of humanity because with the fifth dimensional beings, the way that they perceive time is physical, but they can't pinpoint exact moments in time. And so this is where the whole theme of love comes into play for Interstellar where they're able to, to use Cooper because of his love and his connection with his daughter to pinpoint an exact moment in time, which they, they help him use in order to relay the, the quantum mechanical information to eventually save humankind. Because throughout the whole film, Cooper thinks that he was the one that was chosen because he's the NASA astronaut and, and engineer and pilot. He thinks that he's the one that's supposed to go save the world. But really, the beings, these bulk future beings, were choosing Murph to save the world. And it's not until he's in the Tesseract that he realizes that because he's inside this giant structure and he just sees different lives and, and scenes from inside her bedroom. He's like, why would they choose this little girl's bedroom? Because they need Cooper to send Murph the quantifiable data from inside the black hole to be able to finish the equation on Earth to save humanity. Mm-hmm. And so they use Cooper to use his love to find the exact moments, like you said, to relay that information to Murph. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And that goes back to the line where he says, I love you forever to Coop, to, to Murph because he's decades ahead of her, but he still loves her. And that forever love is what binds them together. And again, Cooper isn't changing the past. He's basically fulfilling his fate. Like this, this movie is about fatalism and relativity where this is a fulfillment of his fate, not time travel. Mm-hmm. And the thing with time travel that I think this film demonstrates is that in, in a way, we all participate in a kind of time travel in our lives. So when we're watching an old movie or footage from some old event that happened in the past or reading an old book from the past, you're essentially time traveling to that moment in time, which happened probably before your birth and even hundreds of years ago. And so everyone participates in time travel in some way, technically, if you think about it, which is pretty cool. Um, and this film, they demonstrate that when Cooper comes back from the water planet after 23 years have passed on Earth, and he's watching the footage that his kids and father left him over that those two decades. And so just like us, he's 
kind of traveling through time and seeing them in these different aspects of the past and interpreting these moments that they lived 20 years ago. That's one of the most emotional scenes like I've ever seen in a film is mm-hmm. where they're on that planet and they come back and uh, Remley's been there for 23 years by himself on that ship, learning as much as he can from the wormhole, but also he seems kind of like, how hasn't this guy gone insane? Maybe it's because he's got such a high intellect. That's why he hasn't gone completely crazy. Nah. But um, he's And then we go to, Coop immediately goes to the messaging, the video messaging board to see his messages and it's uh, of his son growing up and having a baby and everything. And then you can see the joy he sees at seeing his new grandson and then the pain that he feels of learning of his grandson's death and how dark the earth has become and how dark his son's becoming and like hopeless he is. And then the, the final video is of his daughter, Murph, who's grown up and she's talking about why, how she's le- dealt with the guilt of never sending a video message even after he went silent because it's been over 20 years since he's been gone and they haven't heard back from them. And that now she's finally the same age that he was when he left. And McConaughey breaking down is just... It, I'm getting goosebumps just thinking about it right now. It's, it's a heavy scene. Yeah, it's one of the most emotional scenes I've ever seen. And it was... McConaughey has always been... He's always had flashes of talent shown here and there. But for so long, he was just the rom-com guy. From, Good-looking, hard yeah, robbery. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, but he had flashes like in Amistad, the Steven Spielberg film. Um, he's, he's played lawyers to great effect in a few films and he showed his potential but for so long he was just like not considered a very serious actor you know what i mean yeah and then and then in in 2013 and 2014 the reconnaissance happened where this guy made he made he did mud the jeff nichols film and then he did dallas buyers club and then he did true detective and then he did interstellar and, and Wolf of Wall Street. And Wolf of Wall Street. And he just exploded. Yeah, it was Mud that really got him this part because Nolan said that he watched Mud and he saw the immense talent that McConaughey has. Because like you said, McConaughey has been doing a lot of just like rom-com chill movies. He's just a good-looking heartthrob. But he's a very talented guy. And if you guys have never seen Mud and you've never been a big McConaughey fan, go watch that movie because that movie changed my perspective on McConaughey immediately as soon as that movie was over I'm like wow I had no idea McConaughey was this talented yeah it's a great film not many people have seen I want to talk about real quick Hans Zimmer's score in this movie is probably the most listened to I've I've had since the movie came out and it's probably his most unique and his best and yes it's very loud it's very unique though and Chris Nolan wanted him to make a very unique score and he told him that he wanted him to reinvent everything and um, no more of the the loud, punchy bass. No more of those endless strings. Um, he didn't really provide any ideas that he wanted in terms of music. He just basically gave him a one page of text of more of the story than the plot of the movie and what he wanted from him for music. He wanted Hans Zimmer to basically, this is my idea of what I want to feel. Go and create that for me. Yeah, I think I... It's not clear, but I think that the the text that he gave him was a, a short story de- detailing a similar conflict and story that the father and daughter have in this in this film. Something about like abandonment and, and um, reuniting. And so, yeah, he took that small little short story and made one of the most iconic scores of the last like 50 years. And I think the use of organs in this movie is tremendous. 
and sets it apart because organs obviously are used, but they're generally used in certain kinds of movies for in the same kinds of scenes, especially religious. And so to see, to hear the organ in a science fiction film was in space, in space was really incredible and something you haven't seen before and has been replicated a lot since. Yeah. And one of my favorite, most unsung characters in this movie is Tars, the robots, <laughs> which we talked about in the last episode of Interstellar that it was actually mostly puppeteered by a guy, a puppeteer in like yeah. a gray suit behind it. So it's actually not really much CGI involved with Tars except for when he's like running across the wire real quickly. Yeah. And I love some of the the fun that we get from Tars because he brings a lot of comic relief. He's a very giant, sarcastic robot that they say, mm-hmm. and um, and Cooper has to like lower his humor setting. And uh, he also we get a lot of things. We learn a lot about the settings of Tars too, in terms of his honesty setting, which is set to ninety percent, which foreshadows later on in the film when Cooper doesn't reveal to Brand that he's going to detach. And go into the wormhole. I mean, into the black hole. Oh yeah, because what they say is what Tar says is, hundred uh, percent honesty isn't the best way for diplomacy, mm-hmm. which makes a lot of sense because you need to be able to hold some information back from your peers in order to succeed in your missions, which is what needs to happen later on. Yeah, I never thought about that. That's a perfect point. I think that Tars. I'm not sure. I haven't seen any any actual facts about this, but I think that Nolan based TARS off of the monolith in 2001 A Space Odyssey because it looks just like the monolith. And also, before they go onto the water planet, McConaughey says TARS can't come because we can't have him monkeying around, <laughs> which is exactly how 2001 opens with the monkeys and the, and the monolith. And so I think that, that was like a little nod to 2001. Yeah, he based the look off also modern architecture too mm-hmm. of TARS. Makes sense, yeah. But it's really, it was a great design of the robots because they look kind of silly the first time you see them, especially that scene on the base with Anne Hathaway. And you're like, wait, what is this thing? And then once they start revealing their different appendages and how they can move and interact with the environments, you're like, oh, this is actually a pretty ingenious design of a robot. Very practical. A lot of yeah. things that are designed by NASA, you'd be like, wow, that's not, doesn't look that advanced. Like the rovers are, are you know, they're advanced things, but they're just big giant yeah. trucks with wheels basically that's they, what they are they don't look like something you see in a sci-fi movie yeah nasa relies heavily on practical things mm-hmm. to make things to make everything work what's really interesting about this film is that it takes place in a very near future that seems like it could be a possibility for what's happening here on earth where i think this is what 20 or 30 years in the future and intense food shortages have have affected the entire planet and because of the environment, most crops have failed to grow anymore. So everyone's either growing uh, corn or okra. And then also only colleges are only accepting very small numbers of students who excel in the majority of other students who are not quite at the same level intellectually. They're pretty much being forced into some kind of agricultural position career-wise because what's more important to the survival of the species is growing food than anything else. Like he said, like they say in the film, like we don't need any more engineers. We need farmers. Yeah. We didn't run out of TVs. We ran out of food. Yeah. Which, which makes sense. I mean, if the food, if there was a mass food shortage across the world, then obviously governments and countries would put all their resources into growing more food. That would be the number one thing that people need to do. And so it feels like this could be a possible future in the very near future. hundred percent. Yeah. This, this whole film 
and Nolan's done this in multiple films, is a, it's basically a commentary on the dangers of climate change and what could possibly happen in the future if we're not too careful about how we take care of our planet. And um, in terms of how far in the future this is, John Lithgow's character basically plays the millennials of today. Yeah. So that's our generation is represented in John Lithgow's character. Mm-hmm. And we have that great line where he tells Coop that he was born either 40, ter- 40 years too early or 40 years too late. He's in the wrong generation too. Mm-hmm. But Lithgow is basically us. And this is, and then he, we have those hilarious commentaries where he's like, I want like referencing the Yankees and like wanting to get a hot dog at a baseball game. Yeah. It's like a, the Yankees are like a local travel team now. And also Nolan, really captured realism by adding the documentary footage in the opening of the film and then near the end of the film because the footage he used he do, he used a lot of actual footage from a real documentary by Ken Burns called The Dust Bowl which is about a very famous dust storm that happened I think in the 60s in the mid in the uh Midwest and he used the real footage from this documentary and then for shots with like the Ellen Burstein in this, he dupli- he made the the footage look identical to the documentary footage, and so by using the real footage of people who actually experienced the real dust bowl and putting it into this film on the fictional narrative on this fictional narrative story, it really brought the realism to the story and made it feel like a real possibility because these are real people who have actually experienced a life changing environmental disaster, and that's a possi- that's what happens in the film. So it was really smart of Nolan. I know it's a little weird at first, the first time you see it, to see the documentary footage. Yeah, you're like, is it what kind of? Is yeah. it, I thought this was a fictional movie. Yeah, but it's it ends up the more times you watch it, you're like, okay, this this really works in the fo- in the film. Yeah, the the apocalyptic Earth was inspired by the Dust Bowl, obviously, uh, which took place in central areas of the United States and Canada during the Great Depression in the 1930s. And the giant dust clouds were actually practical effects. They created those on location using large fans to blow cellulose-based synthetic dust through the air. So they actually created that dust. Of course you would make real dust practical storms. Practical effects. Chris Nolan, here we go. Let's do this. How, we, how do we create a city full of dust? Let's do it. We'll figure it out. And dust actually has a very important part to play in the film because just like how dust has overtaken the environment and has begun dominating the lives of the people that live here, Dust is used by Cooper to translate the the first binary code to give them the coordinates to go find the NASA base. And so the idea of dust comes full circle where it's a destructive force in the lives of people in this time in the world. But then it becomes their, save, their saving grace. And I also look at it that unless humans figure out how to survive on Earth and to ensure the species grows on colonies... That's what we're going to turn into. We'll just become dust. Yeah. Oh, wow. I know. I'm really wicked deep. smart, dude. And another way they they altered life in this movie is, it's. I mean, it, it seems like it could happen eventually, something like this, where the federal government is, is put, is, has implemented in schools that students are taught that the moon landing was faked by the American government okay. in order to bankrupt the Soviet Union. And so that the space race was just a propaganda machine that the U.S. made and that the U.S. never actually made it to the moon. Cooper pretty much says this in the film is that by teaching the world that the moon landing never happened, they're eliminating hope from young people's lives and they're, they're taking away the, the intrinsic thing that has made mankind survive for so long is the, the need to explore and the, 
and the need to achieve new things and create new technologies. And by saying that one of the greatest scientific achievements ever was a sham, you're, you're keeping, you're preventing people from ever being inspired to do the same thing. You know what I mean? And so it's a dangerous thing that the government's doing in this movie. Do you think we went to the moon? I think there's a lot of evidence that could show that we did not go to the moon. For example, the footage, there's been several instances of little parts of the footage that make it seem as though it was made in a studio. And then also the fact that Stanley Kubrick was rumored to have been the person who shot that footage. And he even has those little clever references, references. in The Shining. Yeah, like when uh, Danny's wearing the Apollo sweater. And, and then another another reference in The Shining that maybe Kubrick did the moon landing was he changed the room number of uh, the room where the the ghost of the woman, the old woman, is because I think in the book it's room two seventeen. Yeah, yeah. But in the in the movie he changes it to two, room two thirty seven, and people think that's because on average the moon is about two hundred thirty seven thousand miles from Earth, so it obviously moves in rotation and it alters in distance throughout the year. Hmm. But on average the moon is about two hundred thirty seven thousand miles away, so people think that's a reference to Kubrick saying that I shot the moon landing. Yeah. Personally, I think we went to the moon. Um, I've done a lot of research, and I believe I I know people have their own thoughts and opinions. You're totally entitled to think that the moon landing was a conspiracy. It's not going to hurt my feelings. I really don't care. You're entitled to your opinion, but my opinion is we went, and I like to think logically. I have like a just. I don't even have to show you any evidence. This is just my logical opinion. I hope it, you don't mind me sidetracking for a sec. Go for it, man. That the space race was so intense between Russia and America. And then even China and Japan, they were part of the space travel race, too. They got in there, too. Every country has landed things on the moon. Every country has wanted to go to the moon. They've all tried to go to the moon. America made it to the moon. And if we were in such a, and we were in the Cold War, if we were in this intense race in the Cold War, we were putting 4% of our national budget into getting to the moon. And Russia was putting everything they had to to get into the moon. Why wouldn't any other country right now disprove that America went to the moon by saying, oh, there's no, there's no tracks on the moon. Yeah. The, the, we can look at the moon right now. We don't see nothing going on. There's no, there's no base. There's no supplies left on the moon. There are, you can take images of, of the moon right now. Yeah. Why doesn't any country, especially Russia, be like, you, America never went to the moon. What are you guys talking about? They didn't yeah. go there five, six times. Yeah. If, if America didn't make it to the moon, why didn't the Soviet Union, why did the Soviet Union stop? Yeah. And, and again, questions are, why don't we go back to the moon? Uh, it's because we can't afford to go back to the moon and keep the space station up. We have to pick one or the other because now the budget's only about 4% of national budget. So they have to decide, keep the space station up or go to the moon. Now we're going back to the moon. But private... Uh, private um, companies going to the moon. Yeah, so space travel had always been just government funding, just NASA. They wouldn't really open up to private contractors, but now SpaceX is getting involved, and in, and obviously in uh, blue uh, Amazon's blue blue something. Yeah, what's it called? I can't remember. But um, private companies, privatization of space is helping space travel. It's necessary. Yeah, I mean, pretty soon. I mean, maybe in less than 20 years, there are going to be moon bases. Yeah. There, no, it'll be less than that. 2024, going back to the moon. Crazy. We'll be there in four years, Crazy. supposedly. And also, just one other quick fact. The reason why Russia couldn't make it to the moon is because they had so much infighting in the, between their scientists and engineers and who wanted control. They could never agree on a simple, on one plan to build their rockets to get out of Earth's atmosphere and they ended up settling for thrusters that I think were, it was like a 10 or 12 thruster rocket, which wasn't powerful enough 
to get out of space orbit. Whereas America, we used NASA used like a two or three throttle rocket to get out, mm-hmm. and that was much more powerful and effective. So I know we talked about this in the other episode of Chris Nolan, but we definitely want to get into more depth on Doctor Man, played by Na- Matt Damon. And this again, if you saw this in theaters, this was probably the most shocking thing that you'd ever seen at a movie before because. Again, Matt Damon was not included in the press for this film. He's not in the trailers. He was not credited in any of the of like the the posters or anything, on any of the marketing campaigns. And then about halfway through the film, they open up Dr. Man's chamber after landing on his planet, and out pops Matt freaking Damon, sobbing uncontrollably into Cooper's arms. <laughs> and you're just like, what the fuck? The whole audience went crazy when that happened in the theater. It was nuts. And... It's a great character because we've been told that Dr. Man is the best of us and he's he inspired all these astronauts to go on these solo suicide missions to try and find a habitable planet. So he was a very inspiring figure and seems to be a great person. But then we slowly learn that he ends up being the villainous part of this movie. There's another villain too where this film deserves a second viewing pretty soon after you watch it for the first time because yeah. we also learn of Professor Brand's ulterior motives for the mission where the mission he tells Cooper it's about saving hum- their Earth, saving people on Earth and getting them into space when really the mission is about repopulating humanity on a different planet yeah. with no intention of saving the people on earth but professor brand masks this the entire film until we eventually learn about it where in his dying bed he tells murph about what happened and murph figures out that all of it was a sham and and cooper she thinks that cooper abandoned him her to, she thinks cooper abandoned her to save himself she thinks he knows but dr man is also in on this and this is where he also reveals to the rest of the team that, yeah, that, that was the plan. We never had intentions of saving anyone on Earth. And Mann also reveals that the uh, the equation to solve the gravity problem that Dr. Brand had spent his lifetime working on, he actually solved the equation before Mann even took off and realized that it was unsolvable and they would never figure it out. So they this the so NASA already knew that this, the gravity equation would never be completed and that they were going to pretend to be working on the equation during this entire mission. And that's why Cooper... The reason why Cooper says yes to the mission is because his plan was, I'm going to go save the world and come back to my family. And if Dr. Brand told him the real mission, he would have never said yes. And so Dr. Brand, he has good intentions, but he does a horrible thing. Yeah, so basically, like you said, the equation has been solved. But they can't use it really, or they can't finish it, they can't finish it yeah. without data from the black hole. So they need to be able to look inside of the black hole and look at the singularity event inside, which is impossible on Earth. Yeah, so they, you have to be able to see beyond the horizon in the black hole. And eventually, so the, again, that the mission isn't to get information from the black hole. It's to colonize a different planet. But eventually, Cooper changes his mission to get the information from inside the black hole to Murph. But also, let's get back onto Dr. Mann and Dr. and Professor Brand, where uh, Dr. Mann says this great line where he says, Professor Brand knew how hard it would be to save the species rather than themselves, which is why he lies about the equation, why he lies about the entire mission being to save Earth rather than humans. It's ironic because he, he lies in the only... his He lies to the team 
and brings him to this planet just to save his own skin. So he's more inter- he's interested in self-preservation and jeopardizes the future of humanity just to save himself. Just like you like to say all the time, Dr. Man is a contradiction of himself. Yeah. And so essentially he lied to them. He lied to NASA saying that his planet was habitable and had potential for life when in fact he says that the moment he actually landed on this planet he knew that he was that it was dead. Yeah, so he creates that fake data. He tells the lie that there's a surface where with breathable air, which is a complete blatant lie. Yeah. And he's also blinded by his own arrogance because he tells Cooper that he never once considered that the planet that he landed on would be would not be the one that could provide life. So he was like an inspiring figure, but also he has an ego that was so strong that he he thought that everyone else would land on a dead planet and he would land on the good planet. But really, he's just a cowardly man. Yeah. The will to live can be so powerful to a certain extent. And he says that, Cooper, don't judge me. You haven't been tested like I've been tested, where his will to survive destroyed his own humanity. Yeah, his will to survive blinds him to his actions. And, and again, he takes the ship up and tries to dock into the uh, the space station. He tries to dock into the ship. And um, this is where he's blinded by his arrogance, blinded by his need to survive and his selfishness. He's ignoring all of his instincts. He's ignoring all of his training. He's ignoring all the warnings from the ship that the dock has not been secured. He hasn't. He's has an imperfect lock on the dock. And this is where he tries to dock without properly lo- docking, properly locking, and blows up his ship and basically risks the entire future of humanity. Yeah. And this is where Cooper. No time for caution. Let's get in there and dock the ship. Yeah, one of the, one of the most emotional scenes in Hans Zimmer's music is amazing. Yeah, we went to this last time. It's one yeah. of my favorite movie scenes of all time where he docks onto that spinning ship, and we won't go into much detail about yeah, it because yeah. we already have, but yeah. yeah, it's the best scene in the movie. And then the, the film, it ends with Cooper translating all the information to Murph, who saves the world. Cooper gets adrift. He leaves the Tesseract and gets picked up by human beings in the future. He's like 109 years old now, technically, and... um. Murph has changed the world. They're they're orbiting Saturn. They're on this little mini Earth kind of place. They made an exact replica of his farm because Murph did that hilarious lie telling everyone that he loved farming. And he's mm. like, you told everybody I love farming. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so he's a famous uh, part of, Amer- of uh, humankind's history now. But Murph is like the hero of humanity. Yeah. We're talking and, about um, Murph, Cur- Murph Cooper here. Yeah, because he thinks the space station's named after him, but it's actually yeah. named after his daughter. And then... um. Again, Cooper, he sees what's going on, and he sees this fake Earth, and he says this great line where he says he's not into how we're pretending we're back where we started. He wants to know where we're going. He wants to keep exploring and keep pushing the boundaries and keep exploring Mm -hmm. because human beings are meant to leave the galaxy Mm -hmm. in his eyes. Yeah, and then uh, he goes to find Dr. Brand on her planet, and it's a great ambiguous ending. Yeah, I think he's definitely going to go find her. Yeah, me too. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Um, I want to point out that Timothy Chalamet is in this film as like a teenager. He plays Cooper's son. Yeah. And it's just crazy to see because he's such a big star now, especially once he's in Dune and everything. Mm-hmm. And he's just like a little kid in this movie. It's hysterical. <laughs> he's like a little angsty 15-year-old. But he's perfectly cast because he seems like a young version of Casey Affleck. Yeah, they and both I, have that a similar voice. Yeah, and this was before he was he really made it big, and this is before like Call Me by Your Name. Yeah, and uh, his biggest scene on script was I think the video messages he was sending back to Coop, 
uh, where Coop watches them back, but he got cut off camera for like all of them. Yeah, he and, Nolan just focused on uh, McConaughey the whole time, and then on Casey Affleck's scenes, and I guess uh, Chalamet like took it as like a big emotional hit because he thought he was gonna be more in the movie with that with that scene. Uh-huh. But um, he's still in a Chris Nolan movie. Yeah. He's, he's in Dune, so I'm sure he's I'm sure he's over. I it. think it worked out. <laughs> And this is just an incredibly well-acted movie. I mean, McConaughey and Anne Hathaway are phenomenal in this movie. Casey Affleck's great. Everyone's so good. Um, Anne Hathaway breaks down crying or has tears coming out of her eyes like six times. It's insane the amount of control she has over her emotions. She has a, a few really good monologues in that film, and she's great. If you haven't seen Interstellar yet, you got to get on this. It's one of Chris Nolan's best movies. It's one of the best space movies ever made. We love it. Of course, there are scientific inaccuracies, but hey, it's a good time. Visually beautiful film. Yeah, it's fantastic. Check it out. Let's move on to Gravity, directed by Alfonso Cuaron in 2013. Also written by Alfonso and co-written by his son, Honas Cuaron. Gravity stars... Sandra Bullock as NASA astronaut Dr. Ryan Stone, who attempts to survive in space and to make it back to Earth after disaster occurs during a routine spacewalk destroying her shuttle. This film won seven Oscars off of ten nominations, including Best Cinematography by Emmanuel Lubezki, who is amazing. If you've ever seen this movie, you'll know why. If you've ever seen The Revenant, you'll know why. He works a lot with Quran and... Um, in uh, in Uratu, and yeah, Terrence Malick movies. So he's a phenomenal cinematographer. This movie was actually originally conceived as a, a wilderness survival movie by Jonas Quaran. And then he got his father involved in the story, and they ended up taking the story, which is still a very simple story, and they just set it in space. Because it is a very simple story. It's got a very simple structure. It's um pretty much got one character throughout it. But it's so emotionally devastating and powerful um and emotionally resonant yeah again it's another it's another shipwreck movie yeah this like we're seeing a common occurrence with these these space movies it's a shipwreck film um instead of an ocean uh ryan stone has to deal with the, the emptiness and and vastness of space no air to breathe no resources but she's also um it's an even worse situation because she's on a kind of a ticking clock to get back to earth because basically what happens in the film is um this giant they're on a spacewalk and this amount this, there's this explosion from a different space station or satellite I think a Chinese satellite, satellite yeah and um it's sending debris crashing through orbit around the Earth and this debris is moving so fast that it's traveling around the world every ninety minutes so that's how fast this debris is moving that's how quickly things happen in space yeah i believe if you're ordering space you're going about seventeen thousand miles per hour don't yeah. quote me on that but yeah, it's, it's, it's something there. like that that's yeah. how fast that you're going yeah and so every 90 minutes uh george clooney's character kowalski uh sets the timer that every 90 minutes this debris is going to come back around and, and probably crash into us mm-hmm. and so you have to constantly figure out how to keep moving and get past this debris yeah and then first of all this movie starts out with Probably one of the greatest long takes in history. It's a 12-minute long take that starts from their spacewalk to the crashing debris. It ends with the separation of uh, Ryan Stone and Kowalski. So it's an amazing opening sequence. And the lack of cuts really pulls you into the movie. 
it makes you feel like you're right there with these characters. It's unbelievable. Yeah, it's Alfonso Cuaron, man. I honestly can't believe we've never really talked about him yet because he's one of my favorite filmmakers working today. Yeah. Um, I mean, we talked about Prisoner of Azkaban for a little bit in our Harry Potter episode, but I mean, Utumama Tambien, Children of Men, Roma. He's incredibly talented, and one of his one of my favorite techniques of Cuaron, like you just said, are his remarkable long takes. And the opening scene is, it's so phenomenal. A single shot lasting that long is so complex. Um, and because of like, this whole film is full of these long takes, not only just the 12 minute, but there are like two minute long takes, three minute long takes, five minute long takes. So this was an incredibly physical role for Sandra Bullock to to uh, complete because she had to spend like five, six months training intensely to perform a lot of these stunts because Basically, what the way they filmed this movie was they basically invented these wire rigs for her to be kind of like puppeteered in the air. And she had yeah. to spend months training with them to make it seem like she was floating because, of course, they're not actually in space. And ironically, the movie's called Gravity. And Sandra Bullock has to constantly fight gravity to make it seem like she's in zero gravity the whole time filming. Yeah, this movie was a blend of uh, motion capture and CGI. And it actually has more CGI in it than Avatar does. Yeah, that's I think how it's much eighty percent CGI. Yeah, that's how much CGI is in this movie. But they still filmed the actors in every scene, and the way they did that was with these special suits, and they they were able to blend together. So the long takes they're not all actually physically one take. They're dozens and dozens of takes that they blend together, and by using the CGI, they're able to meld the shots together effortlessly. After completing this script, Quran, you know, thought he could film this and, and finish the film in like a year. But this film eventually took four and a half years to make because of, on the surface, it doesn't look like a, it looks kind of like a simple movie and a simple storyline. But the complexity of the production was immense. They had to develop new technologies. They had to develop, develop again these wire rigs. They created these really cool like LED light boxes where they would just throw these actors on these wire rigs inside these big LED boxes, these big LED little rooms and uh, act the scenes out like that. And then they also developed these really huge LED panels, and they would put, like, George Clooney or Sandra Bullock in their space who would be inside these LED box panels, and the LEDs would kind of project what the CGI would look like if it's, like, Earth is behind them, and they're spinning, and there's just nothing behind them, but mm. you know, the space station is behind them. And so it was incredible motion capture and in-capture practicality mixed with CGI. It's like they pretty much made a VR experience for the actors. Pretty much. They yeah. developed brand new technologies for a way to tell the story. You know, they didn't develop the technology just for fun. They did it because it was the only way to tell the story that Quran wanted to tell. Yeah, and Lubeski and Quran were very adamant that they didn't want the actors to be CGI, especially their faces. So the challenge was being able to light their faces properly, depending on what was happening in the scene, to also match with each cut and then to match, to match with the CGI they had planned. Because Quaran actually pre-vised this entire movie before they shot, which means he, he, he pretty much made the movie in a computer with very simple graphics. And, he, and so they duplicated on set shot for shot. And so it took so long for them to be able to to match the physical shooting to to be in line with what he had planned for the film. Yeah, and Quran's also obsessed with realism and filmmaking. Like you'll see Children of Men, and it's like all these handheld shots to put you in in the scenes and make you feel like you're there. And with space movies, we don't get a lot of long takes of like astronauts like inside the space stations traveling the way they move around because 
it's really in- incredibly hard to film what it's really like because when you're in space, of course, you're zero G, you're weightless. You're not really using your legs at all. You you can push off with your legs and everything, but generally you're kind of just flying through all these chambers because the space stations outside they they look kind of small, but inside there's a lot of space for them to move around. And these chambers are huge, and like it's not like there's chairs, there's no floors. They just kind of float around and basically swim through the air, kind of mm. to get through all the areas and all the rooms of the space station. So they did a, an amazing job making it look like Sandra Bullock was actually really flying through all these different parts of the space station. And obviously there are several inaccuracies scientifically in this film, but I think the biggest thing that they got right, that which you never saw depicted in a space movie, was the, the silence of space. And so usually when you see a space film, if there's an explosion or some kind of action or anything... Um, you hear those effects in the film, but in real life, in space, sound doesn't travel. So anything can happen. The loudest explosion can take place, but there's no sound to be heard. And so Quaron accurately depicted that by seeing these incredible intense action scenes with debris flying and crashing into the ships and explosions and just the breakdown, breaking down of these, of these mechanical structures, but you don't hear anything. And it was so fantastic to see that depicted properly on screen. Yeah, and it's also similar, like, on Mars, again, the, the the atmosphere is so minimal that in order to hear someone on Mars, they'd have to be screaming at the top of their lungs, like, right next to your ear mm. in order for you to actually pick it up. But in, in space, there's no atmosphere, so sound does not travel. According to British sound designer Glenn Fremantle, creating sounds for a film set in a soundless environment presented a whole new array of technical challenges. Fremantle used an acoustic guitar rigged with microphones on the outside and hydrophones on the inside. With the guitar immersed in a tub of water, Fremantle created sounds by rubbing and touching various items against the body of the submerged instrument to generate ethereal sounds heard on the film's soundtrack. And ultimately, this story has some very powerful themes. I think that the main themes of this movie are regaining the will to live, letting go of the past, and then rebirth after adversity. So Ryan Stone is a character whose daughter died a couple years before the events of this film, and she's still struggling to deal with the tragedy of this death. And she's kind of lost, in many ways, the will to to live. And it's presented in a metaphorical way where she's kind of been floating through life since the death of her, da- of her daughter in the same way where she's floating through space in this film, just in this empty void without emotion. By overcoming this adversity, she eventually gains the will to survive and the will to move on and, get, and carry on with her life. Yeah, very similar to Mark Watney. She has to illustrate a clarity of mind, training, um, improvisation, and also she's also getting like... Um, help from George Clooney's character who eventually, you know, dies, Mm. but she hallucinates him, has visions of him in her oxygen-deprived states, and so he kind of provides motivation for her to keep going as well. Yeah, there's that great scene where she's in in the third ship and she sees no way out and she seems, she thinks it's impossible to continue on, so then she um, lowers the, the O2 so that she can just kill herself with the carbon um, dioxide, and then she has the hallucination of um, Kowalski, who who comes into the ship, and he pretty much gives her the idea that 
life is still worth living and that she can't quit and that she has to keep trying and that she's gone through a great tragedy, but that doesn't mean she has to die and that she can keep fighting. Yeah, and again, this film is beautiful. It's beautifully shot, and a lot of it takes place in these vast, elaborate exteriors, but a lot of it is happening on the inside, on the interior of Ryan Stone and her her emotionality and her, her psyche, and especially when... Uh, Kowalski sacrifices himself to save her because uh, they're both gripped together with that one rope, and um, but he gets pushed away from her, and she's also got she's tied down by a wire that's about to break, and if he doesn't let go, they're both gonna go drift off into space and die. So he sacrifices himself and drifts off into space, and obviously immediately when he lets go, she bounces back to the space station yeah. and catches something with ease. Yeah. But it's a really intense scene, and. In, just to see the sacrifice that Kowalski gives for her to let her survive. Mm. Yeah, it's a great moment. And Quaran uses so much symbolism in this movie. You don't catch it on the first time around, some of it, but upon repeated viewings, you can really see the intentional symbolism that he puts into his movie. And some of my favorite moments are, there's a scene where she gets into that, that new ship and she makes radio contact with someone on Earth and it ends up being like an Inuit Eskimo who has a wolf and the, she's connected to his radio system and she can hear it's or a dog and she can hear the dog uh, howling and then she starts howling in her ship and she starts like barking and howling as if she's howling at the moon and if you look beside her the window to the ship is a circle and then there's frost laid around the the window and it looks like it's a moon right beside her so she's howling at the window, which looks like her howling at the moon like a wolf. My favorite shot of imagery imagery is uh, the shot of Ryan inside the ship. Zero gravity. She's curled up like uh, a baby inside of a womb. And you even have the cords with the, the umbilical cords. Um, and it can be a reference to Star Child and 2001 a Space Odyssey. Or for me, it's kind of like an inevitable metaphor for the evolution of mankind. And maybe symbolizes the future of... Humans being born in space. That's interesting. I view it as she's about to, she's getting ready to be reborn. She's going to move on from her tragic past in a new way. And so now she's going through this rebirth stage where she's in the womb now. And then the light from earth is, is bouncing on her. And it's like the, she's being, she's being given this new life to carry on. You know what I mean? Yeah. That's how I view it. Yeah, I get that. And then, there are several shots of religious icons in this movie because throughout the various space stations, there's a shot of uh, of Jesus, and then there's a shot of a couple shots of Buddha in another ship. And at first, it doesn't seem very significant, but on repeat viewings, you begin to learn that qu- everything Quaran and Emmanuel Emmanuel Lubezki does is very intentional, like most filmmakers. Everything they show you is there for a reason. And so I think that why they show you these religious icons is because ultimately technology isn't essentially the only thing that saves Ryan. She needs her, in order to survive, Ryan needs human spirit and she needs hope and she needs faith in herself in order to achieve this mission, this impossible goal. And so even if technology fails us, you still have hope and faith to get you through. And so I think that's why we see those religious icons. And then the the final symbol, which was why it connects to her in the fetal position in zero G with the umbilical cords behind her, is that's her in the womb, 
And then when when Ryan crash lands on Earth, and she finally exits her little spaceship, she's underwater inside of the uh, spaceship. So it's like she's in the womb in inside of liquid, and then she breaks out of the spaceship and she swims uh, through the water, and she swims to the surface. And then this whole scene uh, alludes to the evolution of mankind from an amphibian species within water into uh, walking um, primates. Whereas, she, she, so she starts out swimming in the water and she reaches shore and then she starts crawling on the shore and then she eventually slowly stands up. But then she has this kind of weird stance as if it's like just like the, the very first mammals that could walk on two feet. And then she straightens up and begins to develop the posture of the present day human. So she actually goes through like the physicality of the evolution of mankind. Yeah, it's it's ironic that he uses both uh, symbols of creationism and evolution in his film with the religious uh, uh, yeah. godlike figures, and then also the evolution uh, theory of her becoming a human being through amphibian creatures. Yeah, because most people view them as contradictory ideas, but then he blends them together to see that they take and balance each other out, and it tells one story. Yeah, this film is a perfect ninety minutes of nothing but intensity because. Again, it's a survival story, but also it's terrifying because there's so many scenes and instances of her on the inch away from death, an inch away from floating away into space. Like when Kowalski floats away from sp- into a drifted space, it's terrifying because he can still communicate with her for a short amount of time via radio com, but mm-hmm. he eventually goes dark and he just eventually is going to suffocate and die in space because... Basically, and they showed early with the, with the other dead crewmates where they're kind of just these these beings just lost in space. And if you die in space, it's kind of the ultimate way of preservation because there's no oxygen. If you die in space, no your, bacteria. your body will not decompose in the way that it would on Earth. And you basically just kind of are drifting and floating away and you're this like floating relic eventually of an unknown world. You're part of. You're floating away to these spaces forever, to, to other stars and galaxies for the rest of eternity. That's mm. your your new. That's what your being is now, mm. and so it's really terrifying, the concept of dying in space alone, mm. and it's just always, constantly, in every scene, a possibility for Ryan Stone. Yeah, and that's that goes to one of my favorite shots when she at first detaches from the space station during, during the the um, destruction of the debris and she's just f- flung back into space and she's flipping and Quaron keeps the camera on her on her spacesuit and then you just you see the reflection of the earth just like sp- like spinning over and over and over again on her helmet and it's absolutely terrifying it's one of the most terrifying things I've ever seen in the movie because the idea and the thought of drifting by yourself into space is horrifying. And of course, there are some like massive inaccuracies scientifically in this film because the idea that you can kind of just like hop space station to space station is a little absurd because these things are so far apart. Like, yeah, I mean, Earth is impossibly massive; like you can't even grasp how big it is. But then factor in that you're in orbit, which you're even further up, so you're even there are even greater distances. Yeah, but um, I mean, it's a movie again, and then obviously that. Really exciting scene, which is basically the final climax of her getting to that Chinese station. And then um, in order to get there, 
it's pretty wild. It seems like it's kind of like the Martian where he uses uh, his glove with air. Yeah. But she has a fire extinguisher because she realizes she's not going to make it in terms of distance. She's too far away from it. So she has to shoot out of the little shuttle with the fire extinguisher and then use the fire extinguisher to like shoot her in the right direction. And it's pretty wild to see. It's really cool. Uh, how accurate is it? I don't know. I've never been in space with a fire extinguisher. I think at least it's more accurate than the Martian one. Probably a little yeah. more. It's it's pretty cool and unique. And then it's just that intense sequence where she's trying to to grasp just like with a finger, just the edge of something <laughs> oh on, my God. on the, she, on the she, station. Yeah. Ugh. I and remember then, that was in the trailer. And the thing with that is the debris is coming at this. The debris is coming back. So she actually grasps the Chinese station and then debris starts flying at her. So she has to get inside the space station, then figure out how to... Uh, like use the emergency escape pod from that station to get to Earth while the station's being overrun and destroyed by debris. It's an intense climax. Yeah. And getting back to the runtime, Quran made it 90 minutes exactly to match how long it takes to circulate the the Earth in orbit. Pretty cool. 90 minutes. Pretty cool. And this movie was a gigantic success. This movie made $723 million on a budget of $100 million. And it made so much money. Sandra Bullock had... An upfront fee, but also she got back-end money. She ended up making over $70 million for her role in this movie, which is absurd. So for Interstellar, Chris Nolan was writer, director, producer, and he made an upfront salary of $20 million, and then he got 20% of gross. And this movie made $700 million. So that is a good way to put into perspective how much money Chris Nolan is worth. (laughs) Which is absurd. Yeah, only him and Spielberg are able to ask for 20% of gross. It's nuts. He made $160 million off this movie. Crazy. Really fun little tidbit is around the 3 minute 50 mark in the opening scene, as Kowalski flies like very close to the camera, there's a reflection of astronauts holding a movie camera in a boom mic, like in the reflection of his helmet visor. And this is obviously just like a kind of like an Easter egg joke that Koran put in. And um, it's not even a real reflection. Yeah, it's not real. So the the reflections are actually CGI. It, it, he wanted. It's a fun joke to make it seem like it was actually filmed in space. Yeah, which we will see when Tom Cruise goes into space. Because it's and also ironic because the entire CGI, a lot of it was projecting and eliminating reflections from visors. Mm-hmm. And there's also one of my favorite shots in the movie is Quran takes the camera and he goes through Sandra Bullock Rhinestone's visor. And you have this like really close up of her face and her eyes, and then he turns and pivots the camera, and now you're seeing everything that is happening outside of her visor with her POV. Yeah, POV. It's amazing. Shot. Yeah. Overall, Gravity's a really amazing film. Sandra Bullock obviously gave this movie everything she had. She is the entire heart of this film. It's her best performance, hands down. Quran is a genius. I love that, guys. We got to talk about Children of Men soon. Yeah. Um, this is one of the most thr- thrilling movies I've ever seen. It was, it, it's so intense. Yeah, it's one of the best space movies ever made also. And if you've never seen it, check it out. It's a great 90 minutes, man. Hell yeah. Let's move on to the final film of the episode, Moon. Written and directed in 2009 by Duncan Jones. Co-written by Nathan Parker. In the near future, Lunar Industries has made a fortune after an oil crisis by building Sarang Station, a facility on the far side of the moon, to mine the alternative fuel helium-3 from lunar soil, which is rich in the material. The facility is highly automated, requiring only a single human to maintain operations. 
Astronaut Sam Bell is the human who maintains the facility, but discovers that things aren't as they seem as mystery revolves around his life. Duncan Jones is a, a really great young filmmaker. He uh, also made Source Code with Jake Gyllenhaal, which is I think is an extremely underrated sci-fi film. Oh, I love Source Code. It's a very, dude. very good movie. And he also did the uh, World of Warcraft film adaptation. And he, um, a lot of people don't know this, but he's actually David Bowie's son. Um, and his real name is actually Zoe Bowie, but he changed it to Duncan Jones to obviously get out of the the uh, the uh, light of his the, father. Light of his father, obviously. Shadow. Yeah, that's a big shadow, David Bowie. <laughs> <laughs> and um, it's even interesting because Sam's first line in this movie is "Where are we now?" which is the title of a David Bowie song. But he's a very very talented director, and very few filmmakers are able to do as much as he did with this movie with such little money. Because if you watch this movie, I mean, if you guessed it thinking the first time around how much the budget was for this movie, you'd say like, oh, maybe like 50 or $60 million. But the budget for this movie is $5 million. Yeah. And he made it look like it was 10 times that much. He was able to pull that off because this is 2009, and this he was filming and in pre-production during the writer's strike in Hollywood, where a lot of productions weren't being made there a lot of movies weren't being made at the time so he was able to get like the best special effects people the best miniature people the best props people Mm. to work on his film very low cost so it was actually like a blessing in disguise for duncan jones yeah and the way he saved so much money was through the use of miniatures and also the plot revolves around one person in pretty much one setting yes there's there's scenes with him in his rover but for the most part he's in the station so they only had to build one set and then otherwise, all the other sets, all the exteriors are miniatures that they built with models and stuff. So, obviously, he saved so much money by setting his film, by keeping the scope of his movie very small. Yeah, and Sam Rockwell, this was kind of like his coming out party of him being an immensely talented actor. Like, this, in my opinion, was a huge Oscar snub, man. When I saw this movie, yeah. I like had seen him in stuff, but like, my God, he blew me away in this movie. I think this is one of his first big leading roles. Yeah, his performance was incredible. And he basically plays like kind of just like three versions of the same character. Because obviously we're dealing with, if you've never seen this movie, spoilers alert, Sam Bell is a clone of another Sam Bell. And then there's also another clone of Sam Bell. So Sam Rockwell is playing like two two different versions of Sam Bell. One... Both who are clones. And also you hear his voice as the real Sam Bell at some point throughout the film. And Sam Rockwell's performance is amazing because it's even more on his shoulders than compared to like Matt Damon in The Martian. Because at least in The Martian, we're cutting back and forth to Earth and a bunch of other characters. It's just Sam Rockwell and Kevin Spacey's voice. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so you're right. Sam Rockwell, eventually, he, he technically he plays one character, but he plays the character in different aspects of, the, of that character's life. And so there's the newly born clone of Sam, and then there's a, there's the clone of Sam that's been living on the station for three years. So the sa- they're the same person, but the older the older Sam has gone through three years of different life experiences. So this is why, even though they're the same person, they're very different. Yeah. So basically, what is going on is Lunar Industries has cloned the astronaut Sam Bell uh, to operate, and they use these clones to operate the station. And after three years, each clone dies. They run through a life cycle, and a new clone is awoken. And throughout the the beginning of the film, 
Sam Rockwell, even though he's like excited to get back home, he's ready to go and be with his family and his wife and, and his daughter, he's becoming more and more sick and emaciated. His body's breaking down, um, and he doesn't know what's wrong. But what he and he doesn't understand yet is his life cycle is almost over. Yeah, and he ends up crashing the rover when he's going to try to fix one of the harvesters of the helium three, and then what the movie does and what Duncan Jones does so well is he crashes the rover, and then Sam wakes up in the medical bay. But Sam like looks very healthy and he's like clean cut mm-hmm. and. He seems to be like a lot more better in better health than he was before. But yeah, actually, so you're like, what happened? Yeah, but actually, what we learn is this is another clone that's been reawoken, but that's been woken up by Gertie. And then this new Sam finds the older Sam who crashed. Yeah, so he convinces Gertie to let him out on a on a mission to go repair uh, the harvester. But really, he goes and finds Sam One. This is what we'll call him. We'll call him Sam One and Sam Two. Sam Two is the new <laughs> Sam. So he finds Sam 1 in the crashed rover and brings him back. And then that Sam wakes up in the medical bay. And we have this great interaction where Sam 2 is like wearing sunglasses. He's looking at Sam 1 waking up. It's very bright in the room. And I'm sure Sam 1 is very disoriented. But it's pretty interesting because neither of the Sams kind of does what you would think when you see a clone of yourself. It's Mm -hmm. like they don't like freak out. They're not losing their minds. They're kind of just... They're more curious than anything, and they're kind of like have this inquisitive attitude. And and when you first see this movie, I got the idea that maybe he's losing his mind. Yeah. And so I think it was all I, when I first saw it, I thought it was a, a mental uh, development of his. Because Duncan Jones does a great job because he does have actual hallucinations yeah. earlier on in the film of like the woman in the space station, and because you know he's losing his mind kind of because he's breaking down. Mm-hmm. And then we just have this great situation of like two clones or two doppelgangers which we've seen in film before and they're basic they're complete copies of each other but their personalities are so stark and so different because sam two he's like very confident he's kind of cocky he's like brand new day one mission sam Mm -hmm. whereas sam one he's been there for three years so the difference between their personalities has been created from their different experiences it's kind of like the prestige yeah and the way duncan jones filmed having both Sam's in the frame is actually very simple. Um, there's no special effects to it, really. It's just you have a, either a, sti- a static camera that doesn't move or you have a camera that does identical movements for each take. And so you're able to film different takes of the actor in the frame for this for the take, and then you just d- literally erase one half of the frame, and then the other half you have the, you have the different version of Sam. So it's a really simple camera technique that he utilizes to great effect. And yeah. when you see it, you're like, how did they do that? And it's actually a very simple technique. Yeah, it's something that Fincher does too with cutting off the frame and putting something else in, Yeah, different takes and everything. So he just does it with the same actor. And I just love, obviously, because we're kind of like clones, sort of. <laughs> so I love like the idea of like doppelgangers or clones in like literature or movies. And it kind of like makes me think of like, what's the motivation of a clone? And it's basically to continue the life and existence of the original person because they think that's who they are. Yeah. Every Sam thinks they're the real Sam. The, the even Sam two, Sam one, they all think they're the they're the Sam. For most of the film, Coming we up. even get a, a really subtle hint at this when he he's on a call with his on the video. He gets a video message from his wife, who's uh, speaking to camera on the webcam. There's a sh- there's a moment where another person shows up in the frame, but their head is cut out. And it seems to be like a guy wearing a suit, and we're not really sure who it is. But in reality, that's the real Sam on Earth, 
and they made these recordings to send to the clones of Sam. So each each time a new Sam clone is born, he receives the same video messages from his wife as the clone before him. So it's like this program they have um, laid out where he gets these the same messages at the same amount of time from his wife back home. But they're actually recorded on Earth where the real Sam is actually living. And then Duncan Jones tells us after the film, he didn't put this in the film, but in reality what happened before the events of the film is that the real Sam Bell allowed for the company to clone him and he was paid a ton of money and now the real Sam Bell lives very comfortably on Earth while the clones of him are working for Lunar Industries on the moon. Yeah, and what Lunar Industries has done to keep all these Sams like lucid with the not aware of the plan is they say that there's an antenna down on on the moon so they can't get live feeds they can't make live phone calls yeah but um there's a scene where sam catches gertie played by kevin spacey the talking robot talking what seems to be like a live phone call with nat with lunar industries and later on in the film sam one while he's almost dead and dying calls his home, he gets because they get access to that live feed. They break the antenna. Yeah, so the, the antenna they, was was blocking the live. Yeah, feed. so they break the they break the antenna that was blocking the live feed. He calls home, and you get to hear the real Sam's voice on Earth, yeah. which is super interesting. And I want to go back to talking about clones real quick. Where again, they're not Sam; they're clones and they're copies, they're genetic code copies. And so to them, for me, Sam, the real Sam on Earth might seem like a godlike figure to them. You know, because as we're told in a lot of different religions, God makes humans in his image or in her image. So these clones have been made in Sam's image. So Sam is basically a god to the other Sam clones. Wow, it's pretty intense to think about. And then and then Sam eventually discovers that there's a whole treasure trove of clones underneath the base that are just been weeping weight that are waiting to be woken up. It has a very similar plot, Oblivion, with Tom Cruise as a similar plot where clones of Tom Cruise have been made to uh, oversee different parts of the of Earth. And, and so, th- oh, sorry. And then Kevin Spacey adds a lot of uh, a, a great uh, personality and, and sense of humor to Gertie, and I think he was perfectly cast because in real life he lacks empathy and real emotions. <laughs> <laughs> He's good at faking it. Yeah. <laughs> but, um... He was asked to do the voiceover by Duncan Jones before he started filming, and then Kevin Spacey said, uh, make the movie first and send it to me. If I like it, I'll do it, and he ended up loving it, so that's why he's in the film, and I don't think he even got paid that much. Yeah. I like Gertie a lot. He's, it's kind of similar to Hal in, or Tars. in 2001, except yeah. a lot more nice yeah. and uh, funny. And But like, why does Gertie help Sam later on in The Two Sams, and like... Does Gertie become self-aware? Has he developed like some sort of AI conscious mind? Is he sick of Sam watching Sam after Sam after Sam die and be repurposed and re and rebooted? Basically, mm-hmm. um, I think you can kind of think that, but I don't think that like Gertie has achieved like some sort of conscious, and which is why he's helping Sam later on in the film. Um, I think that it it's it can it could be that, but also you could argue that. Gertie's helping him do things because the previous Sams have never asked him to do these things before. So maybe Gertie does whatever he's asked to do, but he's just never been asked to do these certain things. Exactly. Gertie's programmed to assist Sam Mm. until his life cycle ends. Yeah. And Sam 1's life cycle isn't over yet. So yeah, Yeah. my exact theory, or what I think is 
no Sam has asked these questions of Gertie. No Sam has asked Gertie to do these functions, and he's probably not programmed to avoid these situations. Yeah. So that's that, in my opinion, why Gertie ends up playing like an integral role in helping the two Sams set up their decoy to let one of them escape. Yeah, so it's something that Lunar Industries never foresaw happening. Yeah, so basically is the two Sams realize that Lunar Industries has been unethically creating these clones of the original Sam Bell, and they do this to avoid cost of training and transporting new astronauts every three years, as well as obviously d- uh, jamming the live functions of the antenna um, to contact Earth. Sounds and, like something Amazon might end up doing. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and what they do with the uh, the dying... The dying Sams is they they trick these Sams who are like very sick and ill into thinking that they're going to be sent back home to Earth and they put them inside this pod. But what really happens is they incinerate these Sams, which is horrible. It's not implied, but you can kind of determine that the reason why the clones die after three years is that there there's a likelihood that Lunar Industries is exposing them to intense radiation, which is why they have the physical deterioration so that a person can only survive at the most three years with this kind of intense radiation. So I think that's why the clones die. It's probably that's possible, yeah. And so what happens is the the two Sams convince Gertie to wake up another clone because Lunar Industries is kind of on to what's going on. They 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 have sent a sort of fake rescue mission to come help Sam out, but really they're coming to exterminate Sam to to get the the clone going, clone situation back and running again. But so they convince Gertie to wake up another clone. They put that un- that uh, clone that hasn't woken up yet inside the crashed rover as a double for the rescue team to find, while the new Sam 2, who's been in the film with the Sam 1, uh, escapes in the escape pod to go back to Earth to reveal to everyone what's been going on. Yeah. And this film addresses kind of like Blade Runner 2049 or Blade Runner about what it means to be human, which we see a lot in sci-fi films, a lot of space films and are these clones human? They seem to be human. They seem to be new beings because, again, yes, they're copies, but they have new experiences. Yeah, I think they're definitely human, but they've just been created to be expendable by the company. Really fun fact is that in the opening of the movie, Sam is wearing a T-shirt that says, wake me up when it's quitting time. So it's like, wake me up, wake up a new clone of me when it's time for me to quit. <laughs> this film also, there's very cool scientific and like, realistic elements of a possible future about like moon bases bases, and everything, but also addresses like real concerns of corporations and capitalistic power and mega corporations and the expendability of people. They use people. All they care about is profit and money and market. And it's crazy when you think about it because Amazon was still, it wasn't even close to the power that it has now. And now they're a corporation that's going to make a moon base. Oh, I, I guarantee you Amazon will be the first, uh, Corporation or entity to uh, colonize a planet. Yeah. I'm calling it. I'm Makes, calling it right now. I bet. I bet. I yeah. bet you they beat NASA and SpaceX. Mm. Blue Origin. Blue Origin. Yeah, they got they got a lot of cheddar. Yeah. And this movie, it takes place in space, but it's very much a film about emotions, especially with just one person. How do humans cope with isolation, loss? Um, again, comparing the the brand spanking new Sam to the old withering away Sam identity. Humanity, yeah. It's a it's it's a terrific sci-fi movie and it's a great space movie. And there have been a lot of space movies made in the last twenty years, but I think that this one, for the fact that it was how it was made with with how small of a budget it was it had, was made with, that 
he achieved something really special with it, and I think it's something to be to like to be proud of for sure oh, for it's him. An incredible directorial debut. It's yeah. one of the best you'll ever see for yeah. sure. All right, that wraps up our modern space exploration episode with the Martian, Interstellar, Gravity, and Moon. Be sure to subscribe to the YouTube channel if you're new. Follow us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow us on Instagram and TikTok at Rays of Lost Podcast. Become a patron on Patreon and, and support the show monthly. Also, don't forget to go to manscaped.com. Use coupon code Raiders of the Lost to get 20% off and free shipping on your order. Thanks for tuning in, everyone. Have a great day.